your Bibles, please take them out. Second Chronicles, chapter 10. If you didn't bring a Bible tonight, please grab one from under a seat there in front of you. Second Chronicles, chapter 10. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you after the service, please. Make that one yours. Important that you have a, a copy of God's Word to read in and study in every day. Second Chronicles chapter 10, last time we looked at the end of the life of Solomon, Solomon, David's son, and we talked to the fact that though he started off well seeking after God, um, he, he didn't end well. His, you know, he chased after the, the things of the world, and um, we, we discussed those things last time, and we looked at, at the very end of chapter 9, that Solomon um, passes off of the scene, has slept, has slept with his fathers, buried with them in the city of David. His son Rehoboam now reigns in his place. And that is where we pick up tonight. And chapter 10, we begin to look at the life of Rehoboam when he takes the throne, when he becomes king. He's 41 years old, so he's not a young man like Solomon was. Remember, Solomon was 18 years old, roughly, when he became king. Rehoboam, 41 years old, he's grown up with Solomon as his father, the wisest man who ever lived, the man who wrote Proverbs 1 and 2 and 3 that speaks to his son, giving wisdom to his son, saying, seek the Lord, fear the Lord, follow after the Lord, don't follow after those that would give you bad advice, follow after the Lord, seek wisdom discernment, speaking of all of these things. He grew up in a, in a situation, not only in a home, but in a city, in, this, in a country that, was, that was, so, was wealthy beyond imagination. You know, Solomon was, or, or Rehoboam was so rich that he didn't even grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. Remember what we said last time? Look at chapter 9, verse 27. The king made silver as common as stones. He didn't have a silver spoon in his mouth. He had a gold spoon in his mouth with diamond studs all over it. He had everything. And perhaps that is, that is part of the problem. We'll see that he certainly had an ego problem. He was probably a little spoiled and had some friends who were the same, but I'm getting ahead of us. Let's, uh, let's look here, chapter 10, verse 1. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. So the entire nation now gathers here to make Rehoboam king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon, Jeroboam returned from Egypt. Now we have to... Pause here a little bit because Second Chronicles, if you'll remember, First and Second Chronicles is written after the exile in Babylon, and it is written to the only Jewish people then at the time. The ten northern tribes at the time this is written have been completely scattered. There's no record of, of them as a people again anywhere else. They they can't trace their lineage. It is just now the southern tribes of of Judah and Benjamin who can. And that who the, that's who this is written to. So we're going to follow, for the most part, through Second Chronicles, the line of the, of the kings in, in Judah, the southern tribes. We lit, we're left out here in this record some important information about who Jeroboam is, because we just read this, you might go, okay, who's Jeroboam? So back in 1 Kings, if you were with us, we studied through this. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 26, we're introduced to Jeroboam. He was a servant of Solomon. He worked for Solomon. He was a mighty man, it tells us, a mighty man of valor. He was a man who was very industrious, somebody who caught Solomon's eye and was even promoted by Solomon to oversee a couple of cities, a couple of areas within the kingdom. And it was on his way one time when he was on his way to serve in that area that he came across a prophet, Ahijah, who took this new cloak that was, that was on them and tore it into 12 pieces and said to Jeroboam, take 10 of them because God is going to take the kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes from the hand of Solomon 
only through his son, and give them to you. And he tells him that this is because Solomon turned away from God, turned away from following only God, and set up all of these idols in worship. Because We mentioned this last time because of the wives that he took, foreign wives who led him away from God. So he's saying this that this is what is going to take place. In 1 Kings 11, though, God says this to Jeroboam. He says, then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. This I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. Solomon then, because of this, sought therefore to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So we see that, that Solomon somehow gets word of this and looks at Jeroboam perhaps as a traitor, somebody who's going to come after the throne or whatever. So coming after him, Jeroboam flees for his life to Egypt. So that brings us up to speed now. Solomon dies. Rehoboam is coming to, going to be made king. Jeroboam hears of it and comes back. It tells us in verse 3, So they sent and summoned him when Jeroboam and all Israel came. They spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. So the, 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 they all gather together. They say to Rehoboam, your dad, Solomon, yeah, everything was great. We didn't have wars. We were fighting. It was rich, abundance, but taxes were high, and, you, and there was a lot, of, a lot of hard labor that was placed on us. So would you, now that you're king, would you lighten that load on us? His initial response is a good one. He says to them in verse 5, return to me again in three days. And guys, that's always great advice if you're presented with something. Don't have that immediate knee-jerk reaction. Take some time. Pray about it. Seek counsel, as we're going to see. Rehoboam actually does. He seeks counsel before making a decision, especially a big decision. Come back to me in three days. So the people departed. Then Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer to this people? They spoke to him, saying, if you will be kind to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. So he initially goes to those that served his father Solomon in an advisory role. And that to me, that just made me pause to think for a second. If the wisest man who ever lived thought it was a really good idea to seek counsel before major decisions, don't you think we ought to? As a matter of fact, Solomon writes in Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail. With many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs eleven fourteen. there is safety in a multitude of counselors. There is safety there. If you're faced with a big decision, again, the first thing you do is pray. One of the things that you should be praying is, God, bring some people into my life. Place people on my heart that I can trust, that I can go to. And when you do seek counsel from people, a couple of just quick things to do. Make sure they're godly people. Don't go to worldly people for advice, even if you think, okay, well, it's investment advice or it's this type of thing. I'll go to worldly advisors. Go to godly advisors, regardless of what it is that you're seeking. Go to people who read the word of God, who are, that you know are, are in the word of God, that will be seeking God in prayer and in his word to bring counsel to you. And thirdly, along with that, don't just look for people who think the same way you do about stuff. Don't look for yes men or yes women when you're seeking a decision. I would even encourage you to go to some people who think very differently than you, as long, again, as they are godly and, and a man or a woman of the word. Because even though you might not follow fully what it is, they will bring ideas, bring thoughts to you that you don't think of. That's why it's so important to get that. One of, one of the things that's asked often 
um, at newcomers' dinners or occasionally here is, you know, kind of what's the church governmental structure here at Calvary Chapel Surprise? And for overall, for most Calvaries, it's run as what they call the Moses model, where the senior pastor, uh, like Moses, spoke, you know, dealt directly with God as the leader, and then there were others that were placed around to help in that role. Ours is a little, is, takes that a little bit. However, the role of the elders at Calvary Chapel Surprise plays a much bigger role in it than that. Yes, I don't shy away as the senior pastor from the accountability that I have before God as the shepherd of Calvary Chapel Surprise. I absolutely, I know that I stand before God for that, and I don't shy away from any of that. However, I also realize that I need a lot of godly counsel. And so we have elders here within the church. And I, I know some, some if churches perhaps you've been familiar with that meet at the elders, meet maybe you know, two or three times a year, sometimes quarterly, maybe once a month. We have elder meetings every week and for two hours. And at the end of two hours every week, it's like, oh my goodness, time is up. <laughs> and most of that time is I'm asking questions and seeking counsel because these guys are godly men and they seek the Lord. And we pray about things for, for months at a time before making decisions on things. And I just, I, there's blessing in that. There is safety in that. And I encourage you to just surround your people again, with, not with people that just think the same way you do. That's the one, a blessing about our group of elders that we have here. And I, we were, I call them the council of elders because they're very different. We think differently. We come from different, different backgrounds, but we all love the Lord Jesus. We all pray. We're all in the word and seeking him together. So I encourage you in that. And, it, and it, it, it's great because you see, again, Solomon did that. Even though the wisest man who ever did, he, he lived. He had these, this, these elders who he had around him. And you look at this and you think, Rehoboam, man, smart, Smart man, smart, I'd say young man, but okay, new king coming into this. This is the first major decision he's going to make as king. And he goes, and you're thinking, great, right on. And you would think, you would hope that the chapter would end right there. Unfortunately, it doesn't. Verse 8, but he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. Bad idea. Again, he's going with now, okay, that's the old guard. That's the way they're doing it. I want to surround myself with a bunch of young guys that think just like me. We're the, you know, we're the, the new sheriff in town. We're going to do things differently around here. So he said to them, what counsel do you give me that we may answer this people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? The young men who grew up with him spoke to him saying, thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you made it lighter. They said, you must be yoking. <laughs> All right. No, they didn't say that. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Now that seems like quite a bizarre thing to say, but what he's insinuating like that, and you can probably connect the dots, he's saying my little finger is thicker, more powerful than my, my dad's leg. You think, you, think it was, you think he was big and tough, and that's what he goes on, they go on to say. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Tell him that, Jeroboam. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam, sorry, tell him, Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, return to me on the third day. The king answered them harshly, and King Rehoboam forsook the counsel of the elders. Again, remember, their counsel was speak kindly to them. Understand where they're coming from. They haven't all grown up in the same position you have. They haven't had everything as, as nice and handed to you as you have. They've been out there working while you've been, you know, you know growing up in the palace. They've been out there working. And, and just understand, try to relate to where they're coming from. 
But instead of answering that way, he answers them harshly. Again, Solomon writes, Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away rash, wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. Can't we all just say amen to that? I mean, have, have we not all been in a situation, perhaps even this week, husbands and wives especially, right? I mean, where every, that, that word that comes out, that response that comes out, and once it comes out, it's way too late to put it back in. It's like, a harsh word that comes out instead of a kind, gentle word that can extinguish the problem, can turn down the heat instead of that harsh word that can crank up the heat. He spoke to them, verse 14, according to the advice of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Again, just the the arrogance, the pride that comes with the, even just the way that's stated. Pro, one more proverb, Proverbs 13, 10. Through insolence comes nothing but strife. Arrogance, overconfidence, nothing but problems with that. But wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Verse 15, so the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events. Notice from God that the Lord might establish his word, which he spoke through Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, without reading 1 Kings 11, what we just talked about, that wouldn't make any sense. But God said that this was going to happen. He said through the prophet that these 10 tribes are going to be torn away. And we're going to see as we, as we continue to read through, it's just the two tribes that stick with Rehoboam. The other 10 go with Jeroboam to the north and make him king of the north, just like God said. And here we see, again, as we look through this entire thing, that just because God said it was going to happen and he predicted that this, this was going to take place, he prophesied that this was going to happen, does not eliminate the responsibility of Rehoboam. He still is accountable for his stupid decision, his, his harsh, rash, quick response, his, his prideful arrogance. It's, he, it, here we see the perfect combination of sovereignty and responsibility. God's will is done. God, what God said would take place happens, but Rehoboam fully accountable for his actions. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, what portion do we have with David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So all Israel departed to their tents. So the northern 10 tribes just basically say, all right, See how this is going to work out when we just turn our backs and walk away. And they just depart and leave. And, and so now you've got to be thinking, okay, that didn't work. But as far as the sons of Israel who lives in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. So again, the tribes of Judah, the two southern tribes. Verse 18, then King Rehoboam sent Hadaram, who was over the forced labor north into Israel. Now, the guy who's in charge of the forced labor, after the 10 tribes come and ask for relief, he says, no way. <laughs> they storm off and leave. Now he sends, already sends them the Department of Labor secretary up there and says, all right, go take care of things. How do you think this is going to end? <laughs> How'd you like that job? Well, and the sons of Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot and flee to Jerusalem, I'll say. <laughs> Sends them in, hey, go follow after them. Hey, get, rein this thing in, would you? And they, they kill him. Rehoboam hops in his chariot, heads back to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Chapter 11, now Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem and he's not just going quietly here. Notice his intentions. He assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. So he's not going to just go quietly and let Jeroboam take the 10 tribes. He goes back, fire, fires up the army machine and is about ready to head out. 
But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the words of the Lord and returned from going against Jeroboam. So we see a little wisdom coming into play. He listens to the word of the Lord as it comes this time, not going to his friends and saying, what do you think we should do? We see a little glimpses of hope. Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and built cities for defense in Judah. Thus he built Bethlehem. Now these cities he did not build. The, 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 what happens here is he builds them up. He, we'll see in a moment, a couple of verses, he fortifies them. So he doesn't build these cities. Bethlehem, obviously, already existing city. All of these were. He's just fortifying them, building them up. Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Bethzur, Zoko, Adullam, Gath, Merisha, Ziph, Adorium, Lachish, uh, Ezekah, Zorah, Elijah, and Hebron which are fortified cities in Judah and in Benjamin, he also strengthened the fortresses and put officers in them in stores of food, oil, and wine. So God says don't go fight them, but he builds them up. But interesting that only two of these cities are on the northern side of things. The others are on the south. And to the south is Egypt. And we're going to see that there was, this was some pretty good planning because of, of what's going to transpire. But he, he fortifies the cities to the south to make sure if there's any problem coming up from the south, they're okay, and a couple of the cities to the north. Verse 12, he put spear, shields and spears in every city and strengthened them greatly, so he held Judah and Benjamin. Just mark that, note that, remember that, we'll... Come back to that in a moment. He strengthened these, these places greatly, fortifying them. So if there is attack, we don't have to worry about that in the south. Moreover, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel stood with him from all of their districts. Verse 14. Now we're going to get, we're going to talk about Jeroboam again here for just a moment. The Levites left their pasture land and their property and came to Judah and Jerusalem. The Levites that were spread out throughout the northern tribes, again, they were sent out there to minister to all of the, the tribes in the north, even though their, their, brother, their brother Levites are working in Jerusalem at the temple. They were spread out throughout the land. Now they're returning for Jeroboam, the son, and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests to the Lord. He set up priests of his own for the high places and for the satyrs and for the calves which he had made. That word satyrs that is there, I don't know if you, some other translations maybe have devils or demons. That's literally what that, that word is, demonic type idols. Those from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel followed them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years, and they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. Now again, some more insight or more information is needed here. Remember what God said through the prophet to Jeroboam. If you follow my ways, if you do what it is that I tell you, you follow my, my commands that Solomon did not. If you do, I will establish you and the ten tribes. I will bless you. But here we see almost immediately, again, if we look at 1 Kings in chapter 12, beginning in verse 25, it says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. There's the problem as it starts for Jeroboam. He said in his heart. He starts thinking on his own. He starts thinking apart from the promises of God because what did God promise? If you follow me and you do what it is I tell you, you follow my command, you follow me with your whole heart, I'll make sure that you are blessed and everything is good with you. But he says in his own heart, you know what? If the people in the 10 tribes, the, those that, were, that follow me, they go to Jerusalem to obey God and take their sacrifices there, they're going to want to stay there. They're going to want to stay and serve Rehoboam. That's what he, verse 27, if these people go to offer sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then their heart of the people will return to their Lord, 
even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. I don't know who he consulted to make two golden calves, and I don't know what Jew who knew the history at all of the people who would think that was a good idea, but he made two golden calves, and he said to them, to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. So here we see even one who, another one receives a direct promise from God. He starts worrying in his own heart. Okay, if, if I follow that, people are going to leave. They're not going to follow me. And the, he doesn't believe the promises of God. He starts thinking on his own. And what he does is he makes two golden calves, puts one in Bethel and one in Dan. On our trip to Israel recently, in every trip, one of the places we go is to, uh, it's called Tel Dan. It's the old city of Dan. And we, when we get up to the top up there, we actually go to the place where Jeroboam had the altar built. And there's a replica of it up there, the size of it and everything, up at the top where, where it actually stood. Again, God said, you, you, you offer your sacrifices to me in the temple. He said, well, if they do that, they'll leave. So he makes these two other altars and sets up sacrifices to golden calves. It's because of that that the godly Levite priests left and returned to Jerusalem. And those god godly people, they return and follow. Because of that, again, Jeroboam will be judged. Well, verse 18, chapter 11. Then Rehoboam took for a wife Mahalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, and Abigail, or Abihel, the daughter of Eliab, the son of Jesse, and she bore sons, Jaosh, Shemariah, and Zahan. After her, he took Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, and she bore to him Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shelemith. Rehoboam loved Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, more than all of his wives and concubines, for he had 18 wives and 60 concubines, and fathered 28 sons and 60 daughters. Here again, we see this continuing on, this idea of multiplying multiple wives, nowhere near as many as Solomon is dad, but still, 18 wives and 60 concubines. Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Maacah, as head and leader among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. So his son, this is, Abijah is the one he desires to be king following him. He acted wisely and distributed some, of the, distributed some of the sons through all of the territories of Judah and Benjamin. So it gets credit for thinking, splitting his sons up, sending them out throughout the territory. He gave them food in abundance, and he sought many wives for them. To continue on the tradition. Chapter 12. When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and, and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. Now, again, 1 Kings gives us a little bit more information about that. Just a couple of verses to read in chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. It said, Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done and the sins which they had committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all of the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. It had fallen already that far under the reign of King Rehoboam. Now, I say that quickly because, again, remember David, a man after God's own heart. Though he stumbled and fell in certain areas, the one thing that we know about David is he never worshipped another god. He never went after other gods. His son Solomon built the temple, and we looked at that over a couple of weeks ago, the dedication of the temple and the prayer. Uh, he, at the beginning, he was a man who loved God and sought after God, but then was taken away and drawn away by these foreign wives, and now here, just the very next generation. It tells us that they fall away to the point where there's, 
There's the ashram on the hilltops. There's prostitutes, cult prostitutes that are going on. All of this stuff throughout the land. Many people still alive, no doubt, that saw. Remember when we, the dedication of the temple, when the glory of God came down and filled the temple? No doubt, people still alive that witnessed that. And it's already coming apart. And it tells us, back to chapter 12 here, they forsook the law of the Lord. They turned their back on God that quickly. Came about in Rehoboam's fifth year. Tells us back in, in verse 17 of chapter 11, for three years, they were following after the Lord. By the fifth year, already God judging them because they had fallen away. Because they had been unfaithful to the Lord that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people who came with him from Egypt were without number, from Lubam and Sukkim and the Ethiopians. He captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Remember, I told you, remember that back in verse 12 of chapter 11. He strengthened this. He did all of this preparation. He was guarding against this very thing. The bottom line, when it's God's hand that is moving against him, it doesn't matter what he's done to try to stop that. The only thing that, that staves off that is obedience and following the Lord. It, to, to think that you could put up some type of barricades around and then live on the other side of that barricade and be okay, not going to happen. They come, they come now, and then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and he said to them, thus says the Lord, you have forsaken me, so I also have forsaken you to Shishak. So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. Their response says they respond in humility. And when they say the Lord is righteous, what they're saying is God is right. God has every right to do what it is he's doing. He is holy and he has, been, he has blessed us and he has given us. And all he has, he has commanded us in response is to love him and him alone, to serve him and him alone. And we have forsaken him. We have turned our backs on him. He is righteous. They're not, they're not saying that this is too heavy, that this is unfair, that this is unjust. They're saying the exact opposite. This is exactly what we deserve. But in humbling themselves and saying the Lord is righteous, and then it says, notice, the Lord saw they humbled themselves. They truly humbled themselves. It wasn't... They're sorry they got caught, that they were just crying because of they saw all this stuff. They truly humbled themselves. They were truly broken over that. And the Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Truly humbling themselves before the Lord, we see that God extends grace. The word of the Lord came to Shema saying, they have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them but I will grant them some measure of deliverance and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak, but they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the country. And there's some really kind of neat lessons here in, in verses seven and eight there. Again, humbling ourselves, when we stray away, when we wander away, to humble ourselves, we, we've, we talk of that. The New Testament speaks of that in 1 John. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, but we confess our sin. Again, humbling ourselves. God, you're right, you're righteous, you, you're holy. I've sinned against you. We humble ourselves. We confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have been delivered because of the cross of Jesus from the wrath of God for the penalty of our sin. Guys, we have liberation because of the cross. But guys, as we see here, there's some liberation. He's granted some measure of deliverance, some liberation, but also there's some continuing education. The hand of God, though, it says you will not be destroyed. However, 
you will go into, you, you, you'll become his slaves. They will become his slaves so that they may learn. They're going to learn the difference of being submitted to me, to being my slave, to, to following after what I will, and to being a slave of somebody else. Guys, here's the bottom line. We, the, 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 the truth of the matter, however you want to deny it, however you want to try to run from the truth, the truth is you're going to serve somebody. Some guy wrote a song about that one day before. Guys, everybody says, you know what? I don't want to be accountable to, to, to God. I don't want to have this. I want to live my own life. I don't want to be accountable to anybody. You know what? That don't make it so. You're going to serve something. You're going to serve someone. And guys, serving the Lord Jesus is the only way to have joy, peace, happiness, assurance. Run in any other direction. You end up a slave to something else that is a brutal, brutal master. Our master gave his life for us. And that's the thing. I mean, when we think of, of slavery, you know, again, we look through it through the lens of human masters, evil, wicked masters. But guys, let me, let me explain something to you. The idea of being a slave to the Lord, even when we look at all this, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Because as a slave to him, he's the one who's responsible for providing for me. He's the one who's responsible for protecting me. I do what he says. I follow after him. I serve him. But it's up to him to take care of all of those things. And what a glorious, wonderful master. Is so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdom of the countries. Verse 9, so Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's palace. He took everything. He even took the golden shields which Solomon had made. Again, here we are, one generation away, the next generation, and all of that wealth, all of the blessing, all of that, gone. Then King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place, committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard, commanded the doors of the king's house. As often as the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards came and carried them and then brought them back into the guard's room. Verse 12, and when he humbled himself, the anger of the Lord turned away from him so as not to destroy him completely. And also conditions were good in Judah. Things overall were good, even though they were servants to, to Egypt, no doubt sending them uh, taxes and that type of thing for this, this season. Conditions were good in Judah because they humbled themselves and repented. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. Now Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah the, the Ammonitess. He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Again, even in this time of humbling himself and repenting, he never followed again like David did, fully with his heart following after God. Now the acts of Rehoboam, from the first to the last, are they not written in the records of Shemaiah the prophet and of Ido the seer according to uh, genealogical enrollment? And there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. You think about that, it's just ongoing, little skirmishes, little fights. I mean, it does it, we, we'll hear of a great battle, not with, with uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam's son in this next chapter, but little fights, little skirmishes going on all the time between the children of Israel, brothers, the chosen people of God fighting. They're supposed to be the ones that are the examples to the rest of the world. Guys, the same is true with us. I, Philippians chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And just again, a pause. Every time I read that, I have to remind you, it again says do all things. Not most things. Not, you know, the vast majority of things. All things. 
without grumbling or disputing so that, and here's the reason why, other than again, because that should be our heart anyway, but so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Guys, if we fight and squabble and and bicker and complain like the rest of the world does, why would anybody say, man, I want to be a part of that, just just like I got now? We're supposed to be lights in the world. Paul, as you read the entire letter of Philippians, over and over that theme comes up. Philippians chapter 2. We do that by placing others' needs above our own. Not always looking out for my interests, but in the, for the interest of others. And because of that, when things come up that might be a difference between us, okay, you know what? I'm going to put your needs ahead of mine. I'm going to look out for you. We all do that. And we all do all things without griping and complaining and bickering and fighting. We can be a light in this dark world. Unfortunate, they're supposed to be that and they fight continually. Rehoboam, verse, thir- verse 16, slept with his fathers, was buried in the city of David, and his son Abijah became king in his place. In the 18th year, chapter 13 of Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Now there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. But this, we're going to see, was a major battle that, went, that took place. Abijah began the battle with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 chosen men, while Jeroboam drew up in a battle formation against him with 800,000 men who were valiant warriors. So they're going out, and they're outnumbered, two to one. Then Abijah stood on Mount Zemariah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Listen to me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Do you not know that the Lord, the God of Israel, gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. Now, a covenant of salt mentioned just a couple of times in the Old Testament. That was that, that salt being a preservative. The covenant of salt indicated that it was a perpetual covenant, that it was an ongoing, everlasting covenant. And what he's saying is that, that God made a covenant with David that David would be king and his line would be king forever. Don't you know that? Don't you remember that? Yet, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his master. And worthless men gathered about him, scoundrels who proved too strong for Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when he was young and timid and could not hold his own against them. So now you intend to resist the kingdom of the Lord through the sons of David, being being a great multitude and having with you the golden calves which Jeroboam made for God as gods for you? Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made yourselves priests like the priests of the other lands? Whoever comes against, who comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams, may he, may he become a priest of what are no gods? But as for us, verse 10, this is, the Lord is our God. And we have not forsaken him. And the sons of Aaron are ministering to the Lord as priests and the Levites attending to their work. Every morning and evening, they burn to the Lord burnt offerings and fragrant incense. And the showbread is set on the clean table and the golden lampstands with its lamps is ready to light every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. So he goes through this whole list of this is what God laid out as to how things are to be done And we are doing those things. You guys following Jeroboam's lead, instead of coming and sacrificing and worshiping here, have set up your own form of worship. Again, worshiping the golden calves even. And Jeroboam, when he set that up, his intention was to keep it worshiping Yahweh, but in a way that Yahweh did not ordained. He did not say that you could do this. As a matter of fact, it was completely against. 
Don't make images. Don't do these things. Worship only here. So breaking everything along the way, but still trying to make it sound godly. And as we saw back then, even, even the word that's used there, demonic in nature. And Paul mentions that in the, in the letter to the Corinthians, Corinthians, that worshiping anything other than God, the true and living God, is demonic in nature. And that's what he is calling out to them. You guys, you, you got to see this. You have to understand. Chapter two, or verse 12, now behold, God is with us at our head and his priests with the signal trumpets to sound the alarm against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. That's a good one to highlight in your Bible, just as a reminder. Because we see, didn't we, just back in chapter 12, that it doesn't matter what kind of fortification you try to build up, the walls that you try to fortify in the cities, how well you supply them with food and, and, and all of that type of stuff. doesn't matter what you do. You fight against God, you're going to lose. You keep pushing against God, you keep trying to do things your own way, you're going to lose. But he's also saying this now to them, giving them a warning. Guys, don't do it. Verse 13, but Jeroboam had set an ambush to come from the rear so that Israel was in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. So not only are they outnumbered two to one, they're completely surrounded. And it's an ambush. So there's a surprise attack coming that they don't, they don't know about. Now, again, I, I, I love how this is, is going to play out. But we see that, again, first of all, they're talking about their obedience to God. And that's, guys, that's always the crucial first key, being obedient. What does God say? Following it, what it is that he says. Now, again, look at the odds that are here. They're outnumbered two to one. They're surrounded, and there's a surprise attack that comes. When Judah turned around, verse 14, behold, they were attacked both front and rear, so they cried out to the Lord. And the priests blew their trumpets. <laughs> Guys, that's the second key. When it seems like you're surrounded, when things are, you're, the attack is coming, your third, first thing you do is cry out to the Lord. He, they, they see this, they response. Then the men of Judah raised a war cry, and when the men of Judah raised the war cry, then it was noticed that God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. When the sons of Israel fled before Judah, God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people defeated them with a great slaughter so that 500,000 men of Israel fell slain. Thus the sons of Israel were subdued at, the time, at that time, and the sons of Judah conquered because they, the third key, trusted in the Lord, the God of their father. Abijah pursued Jeroboam and captured him several cities, Bethel and its villages, Jeshanah and its villages, and Ephron with its villages. And guys, the attacks are going to come. There's going to be times when we feel like we're greatly outnumbered, surrounded, surprise attacks come in front and rear. As if we're living a life of obedience, studying God's word, obeying God's word, crying out to him, praying, seeking the Lord and trusting him as we can't be defeated or God will fight our battles. There's a quote, I forgot to look it up. So I'm going to misquote it a little bit here, but um, the story, the chesty puller Marine overseeing a, had, had his large group with him one time and that they were in a similar situation, outnumbered and surrounded. And he goes, men, we have them to the north of us. We have them to the south of us. We have them to the east of us. We have them to the west of us. We are completely surrounded. There is no way they're getting away from us now. <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective. <laughs> Guys, again, we said that the greatest math equation to never forget, God plus me equals victory. It doesn't matter how many are on the other side. Doesn't matter what the enemy tries to bring. It doesn't matter. But guys, we have to, we have to, again, I just got it written in my margin. One, two, three, obey, cry out, and trust. God brings about 
a great victory here. Jeroboam, verse 20, did not again recover strength in his days, in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him and he died again. He had the promise. He had the opportunity that he could have, if he would have simply again done what Solomon was supposed to and didn't, now here, God gives somebody else an opportunity and he doesn't. And because of that, he dies. Abijah became powerful, took 14 wives to himself and became the father of 22 sons and 16 daughters. Now the rest of the acts of Abijah and his ways and his words are written in the treatise of the prophets of Edo. Prophet Edo. First Kings chapter 15 does tell us this though regarding Abijah who has just a short little blurb in First Kings. We, none of this of what we just read is recorded there. It says this, 1 Kings 15, verse 3, he, Abijah, walked in all of the sins of his father, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord, his God, like the heart of his father, David. And we're going to see that again, the heart that's compared to the heart of David, over and over again, the heart of David. And the heart of David, again, I, what I said earlier, was the heart after, heart after God, a man after God's own heart. Though he sinned and though he fell, and he fell mightily, but he never forsook God. He never went after other gods. He was always, when he, and then when he was confronted with his sin, he repented and was broken and came back to God fully and wholly. And we see that very few, as we will go through the, the chronicles of the kings of Judah, ever did that. None of the kings of the northern tribes of Israel ever did. And again, they were eventually carried off into captivity, lost all record of them. The, the southern tribes, as we will see now, they've returned. As I mentioned, that's what this, this, these letters are written to them after they've returned from exile. God is faithful to bring them back after their time in exile. But we will pick up next time there, and we'll look at... The next, the next king in line, Asa, who succeeds Abijah. But let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. I so look forward to Wednesday nights and looking into these examples, some good examples, things that we are to follow, some examples even like this, when we face battles, feeling that we're outnumbered, surrounded. Lord, if... If our life is marked by obedience to you, prayer, seeking you continually, and we trust you, Lord, we know if you're for us, who could be against us? What can man do to us? But Lord, we also see examples that we need to avoid, that we can never become arrogant, we can never become uh, prideful, feeling that we can do things on our own strength and turning away from you. Lord, keep us ever close to you. Lord, let it be that we, when we're faced with decisions, the first thing we do is to pray, to come to you. But Lord, also that we would seek godly counsel. Lord, when we do, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding so that everything that we do honors you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.